Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Okay, folks, today my special guest is uh, Elbridge Stewart III. I think I got that right. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> hello, uh, and he likes to go by the name of uh, Bridge. And so, Bridge, welcome. Thank you. This is a real special treat for me because I'm just going to just divulge a little bit personally why I'm so excited about this interview. Carnation Farms has always been very dear to me because it was part of... Uh, my uh, uh, formative years of my young adulthood, I went to work there right out of high school as I, I contemplated what I was going to do. And before uh, I knew it, 10 years had passed before I went to college. And for those 10 years, I worked out at Crenshaw Farms and met some wonderful people. Uh, Dana Thompson, who was my boss, and Clarence Oakland, and Russ Pfeiffer, and Lannis Hall, great cattlemen of the past, and, and Bob Costers, and Rick Giles, and other people are still working out there. It's a wonderful community. It's a wonderful place. I've always had a very big fondness of Carnation Farms. And so that's what makes this uh, uh, interview going to be so special. Bridge, this all started because this program is about history of the Sonoma Valley. This all started by the vision of uh, your great-grandfather, who was just an extraordinary person, E.A. Stewart, Elbridge Amos Stewart. Uh, do you want to just uh, tell, tell us a little bit about him? Well, he was he was born just prior to the Civil War in the Deep South, I believe it was uh, North Carolina, and uh, born into a Quaker family. And upon the advent of the Civil War, the, the family uh, could not support the, uh, the uh, Southern cause and moved to Indiana. A number of Quaker families moved north uh, and sold everything they had at steep discounts. Now, EA, tried a number of, of uh, occupations and jobs you know, as he was growing up. Uh, he moved to Texas, he moved to Los Angeles. Uh, he was kind of always in the food business one way or another. And he has successfully pretty well failed at everything he had done up until when Carnation started. Just before Carnation, he was working as a, uh, to turn around a wholesale grocery business in Los Angeles, and he did so. And the majority stockholders realized they didn't need this guy, so they dumped him. And we have a copy of his exit contract where they're going to pay him off. But they said, well, you can't go into the wholesale grocery business for five or 10 years. And with that in mind, he takes the contract and it says a certain number of dollars that he's going to be paid. And he scratches out dollars and he puts in gold. <laughs> and at that point, he has two small children. He has a wife. He's 43 and he has no occupation. And at that point, a person he knew reached out to him and he says, I know where I can get my hands on a bankrupt uh, condensed milk plant in Washington. And I know where I can get my hands on the person who invented evaporated milk. So this gentleman named Yerxes uh, put the three of them together. In September of 1899, they started the Pacific Coast Condensed Milk Company in Kent, Washington. And everything is history from there on. It, it was a time that a product like that was was needed. Dairies were getting pushed farther and farther out into the outskirts of, of cities and uh, as cities grew. And so when milk was delivered, 
fresh milk was delivered into cities, uh, a lot of it spoiled by the time it got there. So farmers being somewhat entrepreneurial believed that uh, they needed to put additives or preservatives into the milk. And two of the most well uh, used preservatives were formaldehyde and borax. Oh, and wow. <laughs> EA knew that was not good for people. Uh, may have been great for cadavers, but not good for people. And so using this uh, patent for evaporated milk from a guy named John Meinenberg, they proceeded to, um, and, and all evaporated milk is, is you take milk, you heat it in a vacuum, which allows it to boil at a much lower temperature, not scalding the milk. You draw 50% of water vapor from the milk and you stick it in a can. And if you look today in stores at evaporated milk, there is no shelf life used by uh, on evaporated milk because it's probably good for 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now, John Meinenberg is an interesting character in history in his own right. He probably worked at every milk, uh, milk company in the world. He worked at Nestle, he worked at Pepsi, he worked at Borden. And in his permanent file, it probably says, does not play well with others. <laughs> but uh, he lasted with us, say, three to five years. And we bought the patent for evaporated cow's milk from him. And he went down to Turlock, California, and founded the Minenberg Goat Evaporated Milk Company. And if you go into a store today, you can find Minenberg fresh goat milk or canned goat milk. See, his son was uh, lactose intolerant. Wow. I didn't... That started uh, Carnation, wh- whose time was come, whose product was come. I mean, you had the you had the gold rush in Canada. You were sneaking up on World War I. And so there was a need for this kind of product. And also, there was not a lot of refrigeration at this point in time. Mm-hmm. This was the era of ice boxes. Mm-hmm. And an ice box is you put box of ice in the bottom and you put the, the, the stuff that needed to be refrigerated in the top. Uh, hence, the ice man cometh and he bring your block of ice. Mm-hmm. Well, as refrigeration became more and more prevalent, uh, there was less and less evaporated milk sold in the United States, but it still had a big selling in uh, overseas and in third world countries. So, well, uh, and, a- and oh, I, one thing about uh, Elbridge is, uh, and the little bit of I read about him, if I can add this, is he was an incredible salesman. I mean, he really knew how to sell his product. And part of promoting his company and uh, basically from a couple of different facets, first of all, just sheer promoting of his industry, but also to try to improve the dairy farm herds that were supplying his milk. He had this vision to start a farm. Uh, There's lots of places to start a farm. I mean, after all, the first condensary is down in Kent, quite a ways away from. So why did this come about that they wound up in uh, Snoqualmie Valley? Well, the reason he wanted to uh, get a farm is that the average Holstein, which does quite a bit of uh, volume of milk, you know, in preference to other breeds, is that the average uh, cow in 1900 produced about 1,500 pounds of milk a year. And using a back of the envelope uh, calculation, he figured there weren't enough cows in the world to do what he thought he wanted to do. So he knew that if you, do, you got the best uh, cows and the best bulls, uh, that you would invariably create better herds. So he went looking for uh, these better animals. And by 1927, there were animals on, on uh, there that were producing 37,000 pounds of milk a year. And I think 45,000 was the record. Now, to, wow. why the farm is where it is, 
is due to a friend of his who he grew up with, a legendary figure in Seattle lore called Sam Hill, as in who the hell is Sam Hill? <laughs> Sam and he grew up in the same little bitty town. And upon the advent of the Civil War, uh, Sam's family moved to Minneapolis, EAs to Indiana. Well, Sam did fairly well and married the boss's daughter. Boss was James Hill of the railroad fame. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that they were both named Hill, there was no relationship between the two. At any rate, Sam comes out, reacquaints himself with EA when they meet up again and says to EA, I'm going to put a railroad from Monroe South along this imaginary line on the other side of the river. And with that insider information, EA goes to one of his employees and says, find me a farm along this imaginary line. And what he found was, I believe, 360 acres. And he bought it sight unseen. EA bought it in 1908. And it wasn't until 1910 he came out and actually looked at the place. And he said, this place is an absolute dump. <laughs> he said, the cows were standing in at least a foot of water. Uh, the pastures were full of second growth trees. And they weren't too good at cows on the, on the first place. And there was a couple of scrawny looking buildings. And he says, cows don't particularly like standing in water like that because it does flood along that area. And it's flooded many times in the incarnation farms history so he took the same employee and said pointed up to the hill behind the farm and he says find me acreage up there just get it and he was using this gentleman as a as shill buyer because if you if they people knew who was buying it they'd probably jack up the price so mm -hmm. he bought a patch meal and he looked at the hill and said oh that's going to be easy i can just stick this big barn on the hill well he could stick the barn on the hill but he hit hard pan three feet in, so you had to use a lot of dynamite to carve out the hillside. The, the barn that's there now is the largest barn in King County at 89,000 square feet. The other thing that he had to deal with is taking down the second growth trees on the, uh, on the floodplain. Well, taking down the trees was no problem. It was pulling the stumps that was the problem, and he bankrupted two stump pulling companies uh, <laughs> doing that. And pulling stumps is not an easy thing. And as I was researching for the museum that we have, and we have two, I found out how they did it. And what you did is after you cut down the tree, you then blew the root structure with dynamite. That wasn't the dangerous thing. After you blew the, the root structure, then you wrapped a steel cable around the, the stump. You ran it up a large pole and down the other side to what's called a donkey engine. The donkey engine is essentially a, a steam engine on something immovable mm -hmm. and in pulling the uh, the root the, the trunk out if the the steel cable parts you don't want to be anywhere near it because it cuts you in half mm -hmm. and while we had no problem with that it was not an unknown thing to happen and mm -hmm. lumberjacking is a very dangerous occupation that's how we ended up with a farm and the farm is just a remarkable place where people see today this barn uh bridge you're referring to is just a it's just an awesome structure it's it, in this massive size and it was built because it was built into a hillside it afforded the opportunity for uh for some efficiencies before their time because they were able to use gravity they basically brought the hay in easily and put it in the hayloft where other farmers would have to lift this up with heavy hoist and stuff and the feed went down and then the cows consumed the feed and then what the cows produced uh, in uh, in the way of manure, it went down into uh, into rail cars and got shuffled up. It's all very efficient for its time. Well, most barns 
have a, a, a pulley system under the eave of the barn. And that's how they got the hay into the hayloft. On ours, which is four stories, you come in on the fourth story uh, with either hay, first hay wagons and then trucks. And they would dump it from the fourth floor down into the third, which was this huge space. And that's where they would store the hay. Um, that also worked against us because in the mid 1920s, somebody decided to store wet hay. And if you've ever been in the hay business, storing wet hay is guaranteed a fire because mm -hmm. hay ferments. And as it ferments, it, it generates huge amounts of heat. Well, it generated huge amounts of heat and burned down uh, the whole west side of the barn. So the, what you yeah. see today is version 2.0 of the barn. <laughs> of the barns. It didn't, it didn't get it all, but we have pictures of the burning. And, and as you alluded to earlier, uh, railroads served the farm. A lot of people don't know this. The farms was, is accessible now by a county bridge that's, that you come in on Carnation Farms Road. But back in those days, access to the railroads and, the, and actually even access to the uh, county road at the time was done by a bridge that was solely owned by Carnation Company that was on Carnation property. Isn't that so? Yes, but there were two versions before that. The earliest version was a hand-drawn ferry that you pulled yourself across the river. Then the, uh, then the bridge went in. But there was also a ferry that went, I think, uh, back and forth to Monroe with uh, milk. Mm -hmm. During the day, it uh, transported milk. And I've been told that during the night, it also transported other liquids. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's but good. The, bridge, the, the, the posts for the bridge are still there. But at some point, and I think probably it was the 50s, the bridge fell in and there was a truck on the bridge at the time and the, and the unfortunate driver did pass, oh. um, but there was a bridge. Wow, wow. So, uh, well, it's, uh, it's about the time for us to take a break. Uh, when we'll, we'll just take a break for a moment here. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about uh, some of the present day improvements that have been made out the farm. Bridge, some exciting stuff that I was able to see firsthand myself. So we'll be right back folks. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your Valley community radio station. Join us for our weekly paranormal radio show, Northwest Phenomenon, each Sundays at 7 p.m. Have a story you'd like to share? Call our Northwest Phenom hotline 24-7-775-990-5151. Or you can email me on my website, onairmario.com. All calls and emails are confidential. Listen on demand, subscribe to our podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Search Northwest Phenomenon. We'll see you Sunday at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9. Remember to take the journey on Sunday nights at 10 p.m. to midnight with Musical Star Streams, hosted by Forrest. Each week brings a new two-hour episode of Exotic Electronica. It follows Radio Masterpieces, which airs at 9 p.m. on Valley 104.9, your community station. And thanks for listening to Valley 104.9. Radio Survivors, our weekly show where we feature stories and interviews on community radio, radio history, podcasting, low power FM, college radio, and more. Radio Survive on Valley 104.9 FM, 6 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. 
I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me in the Global Village for the best in music from all around the globe. We highlight new releases, rare and classic recordings, birthdays, holidays, and a host of features, specials, and unique concert performances, all drawing on styles and influences from many different corners of the world. Great sounds from all around the globe in the Global Village, Thursday nights from 7 till 9, here on Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Welcome back. Continuing to talk to uh, Bridge Stewart. The Stewart family name ought to be known by all in the Carnation area as the uh, as the family that was responsible for bringing Carnation Farms to Snoqualmie Valley. Bridge, we were talking about the barns and about the structures at the farm. And uh, recently, you have been really instrumental in creating uh, three different rooms of great interest in two of the buildings out of the uh, uh, out the farm that I got a personal tour of uh, last week that I was really delighted about. Can you tell the, our listeners a little bit about, about these three different rooms and the purpose they serve? Sure. First one I'll talk about was a calf barn. And as the herds got downsized, the farm manager, Dave Owens, uh, repurposed it into a museum uh, showing different products. And it was Nestle owned by that time. So he had to be very careful on including as many Nestle products as he could to curry <laughs> favor with the uh, the Nestle folks that actually didn't know they owned a, a farm for about seven years. Um, <laughs> at any rate, we have been re uh, refreshing all these different uh, things that we show about the products and the growing up of the farm. And uh, so that's almost finished and almost time for uh, doing tours again. Another one of the museums is a carriage museum. And not only does it have antique carriages from turn of the century, uh, that were used on site for public horse shows in the 20s and 30s, but it has a series of antique trucks. Uh, I think we have three Model T, uh, two Model T trucks and a Model T car and a Model A car from 1929. The trucks are from the 19, the Model Ts are from the 1913 to 1950 era. One of the trucks is a one of a kind Disney Carnation truck that sat at Disneyland from 1954 before uh, Disneyland opened until probably the early 90s. And it, it is a unique truck because we have a whole file of pictures of Walt Disney driving this truck. And it was driven in, driven in the opening day parade in July of 1955. So we, we show these, we show uh, the relationship between Disney and Carnation. We show pictures of the horse shows that were on site. So we have a number of those. Additionally, we have an archives where everything that was not on display uh, sits. And we have all, we might probably have hundreds of thousands of things that we have copies of every picture of every cow that was done there and the record of that cow. Um, we documented what's called a mutant gene of red Holsteins. It was a brownish red Holstein uh, that most farmers killed because they thought they were not pure enough. They were just as good. They just had a mutant gene that colored their code brownish red. So we have all the records on that and people occasionally come and study our genetic records on different types of cows. And what a remarkable uh, job uh, Carnation Company did about the advancement <coughs> of, uh, of the dairy breed of cows called uh, Holstein Friesian cattle. Uh, so much so that uh, world records have been set out at Carnation Farms. And, and one, of the, one of the things that people that visit the farm are able to see is a big statue right out in front of one of those, uh, one of those cows that produced a world record. And uh, it just shows you the, uh, the level of in 
intent that was there of Stewart of uh, promoting uh, dairy breeds. But, you know, dairy cows weren't the only thing that the um, that the farms played a role in trying to advance uh, betterments into uh, feed products and stuff. Other animals were included, too. Do you want to talk about those? Well, before we get into that, I'd like to uh, go uh, fast forward from the 50s and 60s to the uh, 80s on uh, genetic research on cows, because we got mm -hmm. into what's called the host mother implantation program. And essentially, Carnation could tailor make you an animal. Couldn't guarantee whether it was gonna be a cow or a bull, but they could guarantee you a bloodline. And the process is you would give hormone shots to a cow that was at the right point in her gestation period, and she would drop eggs. You would take those eggs, uh, harvest them and then artificially inseminate them from another known bloodline that you had kept in liquid nitrogen. Then you would take these fertilized eggs and reimplant them in yet another, a host mother cow who was at the same gestation track as the original cow. And you could have any number of calves from the same bloodline from the same cow in a year. And there is a, a picture showing 24 calves from one cow cow's eggs, I don't know whether it was a year or 16 months, the hardest part of that program was just, just getting the calves to line up and not run away. But <laughs> yeah. that was one of, I mean, that's as close to cloning as we got. Now to speak to the other animal programs, uh, in 1929, we bought Albers Milling, and that got us into animal feeds. And so we did uh, research on what feeds would be good for pigs and chickens and turkeys and pheasants and all kinds of animals. But in the 1930s, it also got us into dog foods. And Frisky's dog food was our product line. And all of the research was done out at Carnation Farms. And they would take very excellent dogs and experiment on what foods they liked, how they gained weight, uh, what was their preference, and uh, both on, on dry and wet dog foods. They also did cats, but cats came much later because my grandfather did not like cats. And so he said, <laughs> you can have cats, but they have to be as far away from the dogs as possible. Down by the river might be a good place. <laughs> and it was never suggested that he uh, hoped harm would come to the cats, but they were not as good a pedigree as the dogs. In fact, our dogs, one of our dogs took best of show at Westminster, and I don't think it gets any better than that. The cats were got from the pound, but they were, boy, they were pampered and treated very nicely. And again, they experimented on what foods they liked. And they even uh, experimented on competitors versus ours on blind tastings and which one did they prefer better. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, and, and it was, you know, a lot of nutrition research was done uh, at the farm, both on cows, uh, cow feed and uh, other, other types of feed. So quite a bit of, of research went on there. It was, it's so interesting that, you know, they did these feed trials for very uh, practical reasons of advancing their commodity, which was a, a dog food in this particular case or, or other type of feeds for different kind of animals and chickens uh, uh, trials and every other thing out there. But they also had that commitment to try to further those breeds by showing them in the, like you said, in the, in the dog shows. And the horses uh, had a remarkable run of uh, success in, in, in different horse shows. Uh, uh, you want to talk a little bit about some of the trophies that were won? Well, uh, the, the horses were a hobby. You know, it, it, when he was, I think, 65, he realized he wasn't busy enough, which is hard to believe. And <laughs> he took up uh, show horses. They weren't racing horses or anything. 
So he would have these formal horse shows during the year, and there were two stables, one in Pomona, which is now the Pomona County Fairground, and one at Carnation. And during the summer, he would invite several thousand of his closest friends out to the Hippodrome, which is on site, and they would have these very formal horse shows. And uh, we have a, a collection of some of the trophies. Unfortunately, many of the solid silver trophies were stolen over time. And we were able to get one back. It was a very poignant trophy because it was for an animal that won it three years in a row and they retired the trophy and gave it to the farm. And then this was 28, 29 in 1930. In 1931, the horse was taken to a very big show in Oakland, California, and an arsonist torched the stables. And at the height of the fire, the groom for this animal went in to try to get the animal out and horses are just terrified of fires. Neither one came out. The groom was not willing to leave the horse. And so baked into his hand when they found him was the bridle from the horse. Oh, and to wow. that man who we know who he is and what his name was, we have dedicated this trophy for his courageous attempt to save the animal. Oh, wow. Such as, uh, and, and there has been such a remarkable level of dedication amongst many of the employees. I'd like to uh, go back to something you were just talking about just a moment ago, give him a shout out, because uh, Dr. Eric Studer, who's now retired, was in charge of that uh, program that Bridge was just talking about, and a person, of course, I, I know well, and just a, a, he was world-renowned in that procedure, and he's still in incarnation, uh, him and his wife, Betty, and just really lovely people. The history has been of the farm and their contribution to it uh, doesn't just stop at the farm. They've even done some things in the town of Carnation. One that I liked, it, it not only was there a whole array of buildings that used to occupy employees at one time that, that worked off the farm that was within city limits, but there's one building that is really probably one of the biggest attractions in Carnation. It's a beautiful church and it that is totally responsible from the Stewart family. You want to tell that story, uh, Bridge? Well, the Toll Congregational Church in 1937, their church burned down. And I call her Grandma Nan uh, affectionately. It was Nan uh, Fullerton Stewart met with parishioners on a Friday night. And she said, we will help you rebuild your church. Her husband and the three, uh, her three sons were away on a, on a weekend fishing trip. And either Friday night or Saturday night, she died in her sleep. And so bereaved was her husband that he and his father, Albert Jameis Stewart, uh, committed to erecting a church to replace what had burned down. What they erected was a Celtic Scottish church. We don't know which one it was patterned after because there are a lot that look the same, but the cross with a circle around it is a Celtic uh, symbol. And mm -hmm. so that's what was, and it's a beautiful church with beautiful stained glass windows uh, memorializing her life. And uh, that was their gift to the town. It, it's a beautiful building. And like I said, a lot of it's a, a lot of people hold, uh, come out there to Carnation just to hold their weddings in the church. It's a, it's a remarkable building. And, uh, and when you uh, come out to Carnation Farms and, and can't make a tour, you need to go to Carnation and see that building too, because it's right on the main street as you go through town. Bridge, this this is something that people really, if they have a group that can come on to really appreciate it and make it worthwhile for uh, you to give a, a tour, you or others to give a tour of uh, these facilities, how would people go about doing that? Well, the easiest way right now, and it probably will change, and, and uh, we, we are setting up a, a website, but if you email me, lbridges at carnationfarms.org, I can try to set something up. 
uh, I travel a, a, a reasonable amount, but we will, we're going to try to have at least two tours, walking tours uh, a month to show the different buildings, the museums, and just the grounds and to, and to explain about some of the history of the buildings and the grounds. And I just can't emphasize to people enough about if you have never been there, you really need to do this because it is just such a beautiful ground. It's, uh, the, the buildings are so imposing. And this work uh, that Bridges, of course, he's a modest man and he's not telling you the, the, the impact of what they've done. These exhibits that they've done, that they've created, and the condition of the vehicles and carriages that are in this museum, they're just impeccable. They really are something that you would want to go see. And their archive room, which is only about a year old, is just like, uh, and built in a barn, does not, get, it does not resemble a barn when you get inside there. It's just a beautiful archive room, so well equipped with a lot of antique desks. Every one of these are very, very impressionable uh, places to visit. So I encourage you to do so. And then real quickly, there's also one other thing called the farm stand that's right on the main road in front of the uh, farm. That's where people can stop by and pick up a few things, including your book, correct? Right. Um, and it's, it's full of all kinds of things that have never seen the light of day in any of the other publications that I have. There was a 75th anniversary book, The Carnation, put out. But this goes much more into detail on the history of the farm and, and some of the people. And it, it goes over things that were just never printed. Bridge, this has been such a delight. I really do appreciate this chance to uh, interview you and to get to know you uh, more. I just uh, really hats off to you about the work that you're doing out to Carnation Farms. It just is, is great to see. And this has been a, a, a very special time for me to, to interview and get to a chance to know you more. So thank you for being my guest. And folks, that wraps it up for today. Uh, please tune in next uh, Monday and Sunday uh, for, for the next episode of Tales from Tol further explore the uh, history of the wonderful place we call the Snoqualmie Valley. Thank you, everybody. Bye.